Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Veith, and this is Rebel History. The year is 1924. The place? The white, stately Mount Baker Mansion owned by Roy Olmsted and his wife Elsie. Hello? Mark, this is Roy. We're having a party. Can you bring a couple of bottles around? Sure thing, boss. Hi, Eddie. This is Elsie. We're having a little party up at the house. Okay, Elsie. Sounds like fun. Eddie, could you bring a couple of bottles with you? Sure thing. See you soon. Louie, this is Roy. We need a few bottles up at the house. Okay, I'll be in in an hour. Thanks. Hello? This is Elsie. We're having a little party up at the house. Could you bring up some bottles? Of course, anything for you. Whilst do beer, odor whiskey. Cut that stuff out and bring out the booze. I think he was on to me. No one else is answering. Later that night, Roy and Elsie Olmsted rode in the back of William Whitney's car. Whitney's wife sat in the passenger seat. She waved her husband's Colt 45 in the Olmsteads' faces. <laughs> what a splendid party! Didn't you have fun? Mrs. Whitney cackled with her husband. The U.S. Customs Department and the Coast Guard were getting more serious in their efforts to take on the rum runners around the San Juan Islands. Between the two groups, they added 25 new vessels to their fleet. The boats were built for speed, using cutting-edge technology and boasting machine guns as well as powerful rapid-fire railguns, whose large metal projectiles could devastate fleeing smugglers. Always one to rise to a challenge, Olmsted and his top rum runner, Prosper Granick, set about constructing his fastest ship yet. Named after his wife, Elsie. It ended up costing him over $50,000 and measured in at 102 feet. It was capable of carrying thousands of cases of liquor. Fitted with three aircraft engines, it had a top speed of over 30 knots and included a radio transmitter built by Hubbard. A huge crowd came out to see its launch and spectators remarked on the ship's beauty. Only a month later, while Prosper and his crew were making a midnight run through the Harrow Strait, rough seas caused damage to the engines and the ship was soon engulfed in flames. The crew was forced to abandon ship and swim ashore. The Coast Guard unit tasked with capturing these men was headed by Captain Lorenz Lonsdale, a passionate prohibitionist. He was known as a surly character, despite measuring only five feet tall. He'd been instrumental in developing Coast Guard activities in the Pacific Northwest region. Among the first of its members to lead dangerous night rescues in the stormy waters of the Pacific. Nicknamed Grandad, 
by both his men and those looking to run from him. He captained the Arcata, a ship infamous among the smugglers, for firing first and asking questions later. The Coast Guard had established bases throughout the islands and effectively forced rum runners toward Deception Pass, a dangerous strait requiring expert sailing to navigate. Prosper had begun finding himself increasingly in the crosshairs of the Arcata's machine guns, forced to make dramatic escapes through treacherous waters. While the boat captains faced increased pressure at sea, the Prohibition Office, under the leadership of agents Lyle and Whitney, attempted to step up their efforts. Their team had been facing increasing scrutiny as many of their agents had been accused of drinking on the job, violence, selling seized liquor, and bribery. The two top agents, however, were protected by Senator Wesley Jones, who was one of the nation's top prohibition proponents, and had ties to top brass in the Anti-Saloon League. Members of the League also enjoyed the vengeance Whitney's agents unleashed on the bootleggers, seeing it as a righteous retribution for their sins. Olmsted, however, remained an elusive target, consistently outmaneuvering prohibition agents, exposing their ineptitude. Roy was approached by a man named Richard Fryant, an experienced freelance wiretapper who had performed industrial espionage for the New York Telephone Company. Fryant showed him a transcript of taps he'd performed on Olmsted's operation and offered to destroy them for $10,000. Roy, however, consulted his lawyers and felt confident knowing wiretapping was illegal in Washington State and believing the evidence would be dismissed at trial. With that in mind, he told Fryant to go to hell. Scorned, Fryant appealed to agents Lyle and Whitney, who promptly made him a prohibition agent and tasked him with establishing more taps, eventually placing one on Olmsted's home. Olmsted worked with the telephone company to discover Fryant's tap in one of his downtown offices above the ladies' room. Roy knew there would be more to come, but trusted in his knowledge of evidence law and his attorney's counsel. Knowing that they had listeners on their calls, Roy's men would give fake drop-off points before heading to a public payphone to convey the real information. Relishing at the thought of Whitney spending his night on an empty beach in the pouring rain. They even went as far as to set up a fake drop at a parking garage downtown. Roy headed there with an entourage of his men, and they did their best to look conspicuous. Prohibition agents stormed the scene with guns drawn, believing they'd finally made their big bust. Roy and his men, however, had planned the entire thing. Roy humiliated Whitney in front of his men 
and made sure local newspapers had a full account of the event. Whitney, however, was patient and persistent in pursuing his revenge. The pressure on their department was increasing, and it was made clear the men needed a successful bust soon, or they would be out of a job. In October of 1924, Canadian agents boarded one of Olmsted's ships, the Ava B., on a customs charge. Working with their American counterparts, they were able to flip the men and gain evidence against Olmsted. A month later, in November, on the evening of the 17th, Prohibition agents came screeching down the road to Olmsted's Mount Baker residence. The agents were armed to the teeth and established a perimeter around the mansion. Whitney had secured a warrant based on the wiretaps and evidence gained from the crew of the Ava B. A smiling and seemingly unfazed Olmsted greeted them at the door. Unsettled by his calm demeanor, Whitney and his men rounded up those inside and forced them into the dining room. Held at gunpoint, Olmsted took a seat at the table along with Al Hubbard, one of his smugglers, and his wife, who had been in the middle of broadcasting her radio show, Aunt Vivian, from upstairs. Finding no alcohol in the house, Whitney had to settle for documents and financial forms discovered in an upstairs office. In a very peculiar move, Whitney had brought his wife with him, perhaps hoping to show himself in a more attractive light after his string of continued failures. Tommy Nakagawa, the Olmsted's houseboy, arrived home in their Studebaker. He told the federal agents who jumped him that he'd been downtown gambling. Transportation manager Herb Fletcher parked down the street. When he spotted one of the agents, he tried to stash a half-drunk bottle of whiskey in the bushes, but was a little too late. He was escorted inside at gunpoint. Things took a turn for the bizarre, as Whitney produced a list of phone numbers from his pocket, secured during the previous months of wiretapping. The numbers on the list were those of smugglers and business associates in Olmsted's operation. Whitney and his wife called them up, pretending to be Roy and Elsie, inviting them to the house for a party and instructing them to bring booze. Some caught on to the deception and stayed away, but some fell for it. They'd arrive at the door and were greeted by officers who'd forced them at gunpoint into the kitchen. The scam ultimately discovered by one of Roy's crew when he began speaking German to Elsie, as he often did, only to be berated by the woman on the other end. Around two in the morning, the Olmsted's chef cooked ham and eggs for everyone, including the agents. After the bizarre breakfast, nine men and three women were taken downtown for interrogation. Most posted bail, but as punishment for not cooperating, Whitney sent the young Al Hubbard to the city's immigration detention center. Newspaper reporters had gathered outside the Prohibition office when Olmsted emerged in the midday sun and assured them 
he had no fears of being charged. However, the strain of a long night and Whitney's gloating seemed to take a toll on the typically level-headed Olmstead. As a reporter jumped in front of his wife and flashed a photo, Roy shoved him to the ground and kicked his camera across the street. Upon hearing the news, Seattle Mayor Doc Brown, a friend of the Olmsteads, expressed his outrage at the raid and Whitney's tactics. There is a difference between enforcing the law and making a grandstand play. They could raid my home in the same way, come to my home and search it, find no liquor, and then telephone bootleggers who would bring it. They could raid the Reverend Matthew's house the same way. Roy's optimism and the mayor's indignation had little effect on the joy experienced by Whitney and Lyle as they celebrated their first major victory. On January 19, 1925, a grand jury delivered an indictment against Roy and 90 of his men. They were charged with conspiracy to possess, transport, and import intoxicating liquors, as well as to barter, sell, deliver, and furnish them. The case caught the attention of the nation and was set to be the largest trial under the 18th Amendment so far. Ever the unshakable and stoic leader, Olmsted seemed to shrug the whole thing off and went straight back to work, placing large orders from Canada and beginning a scheme to bring alcohol in by railroad. He tightened his ranks, weeding out any deemed untrustworthy and left the legal proceedings to his lawyer, Jerry Finch, who himself was a defendant in the trial. However, they received some bad news when the judge in their case ruled that the evidence gained by wiretaps was fair game along with Whitney's raid on the Mount Baker residence. At this point, many of the other 90 defendants began getting uneasy and some flipped approaching Whitney for deals. Others hired famous trial attorney George Vanderveer, known nationwide as Counsel for the Damned, whose crafty arguments and courtroom performance had saved the fate of many men operating outside the law. Senator Jones and powerful members of the Anti-Saloon League sent representatives to the Washington Prohibition Office, informing Whitney and Lyle in no uncertain terms that they must secure a conviction against Olmsted or it would mean the end of their careers. Feeling the heat, Prosper Granick fled with a handful of men for Canada, a warning sign of the stormy days to come. Next, episode on Rebel History. The Stutes Bearcat Roadster is a hell of a car, a boy genius, and betrayal. Rebel History is written, narrated, and produced by Andrew Feith. Rebel History, shining light on the shadows of history and the rebels who dwell there.